The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. If you haven't already, I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 1. <clears throat> to bear with me a little bit, I'm on the tail end of a cold. It's the second round uh, for this going through my family, the consequence of having four peach tree dishes of disease that live with us. But, those are my children, by the way. Um, but I do have good news. It's official. My family has moved into our new house. Yay! <laughs> there has been much rejoicing. Um, but seriously, thank you so much for your prayers and especially for all of your help. It has definitely been a journey this time around, but we are loving our new home. We're definitely still getting used to it. On, a, on our first night there, I woke up at midnight to the sound of Asher screaming. And I I got up immediately to go check on him and try and help him get back to sleep. Um, and the moment I stood up, I was completely disoriented. Do you, do you remember as like a little kid, you'd spend the night at somebody's house and you'd wake up, you have no clue where you are. That was the feeling. I couldn't find the door to get out of my room. And then I finally do, and I go up the stairs, and I run into the wall at the top of the stairs. And the only reason I even knew which room he was in is because he was screaming. Yes, but, but I mean, this is the type of thing that uh, you, you typically do from just rote memory, right? Like wander around in your house half-conscious while it's dark, but you're still able to get to where you're going because you just, you just know it from muscle memory. Uh, because you've done it a million times. Or at least if you're a parent, you've done that a million times. But even if you're not a parent, you know what I'm talking about. I, there are things we all know from repeating them over and over again. So you ever start driving and you start daydreaming and you just end up driving somewhere? Like you have a default destination that you drive to? Just me. I'm the only person that ends up at Shades if I start daydreaming on the road. Okay. Or for all of you who can read and write, you can do that because some cruel adult in your life made you do things repeatedly over and over and over and over again until it literally became muscle memory. Reading the muscle of your brain, it memorized symbols and translated them to sounds. Writing the muscles in your hand. You were not good at writing when you first started. Most of us still aren't because we live in the digital age, but that's beside the point. Muscle memory, it makes me think about like Levi, my son, teaching him how to throw a baseball. When I first started teaching him how to throw a baseball, he could not do it at all, no matter how awesome my instructions were. He could, he could mentally grasp the concept, but, but learning something is more than just grasping it mentally. There's more than just mental memory. We talk about muscle memory for a reason. And Levi has done this so many times now that when he goes and plays baseball, he just plays. He just picks up a ball and throws it without even thinking about it. Muscle memory, not just mental. The season of Advent is about muscle memory. Spiritual muscle memory. Year after year, we do the same things during this season put up the same decorations, we go through the same motions, we light the same candles, we, we do this year after year. Why? We are training our spiritual muscles. This, this is not just what we do during Advent, this is what we do every week. 
week after week, we come here. We physically travel and journey and gather together in a place. That's got a purpose. There's a reason we don't all just stay home and listen to a podcast. We, we gather together week after week. We use our voices. We sing week after week. We pray week after week. We take communion. We physically move to a table, tear a piece of bread. We touch and we taste week after week. We, we hear, we listen to the gospel preached week after week. Why? We're developing spiritual muscle memory. Like through this never-ending rehearsal of the gospel story, through preaching, through prayer, through singing, communion, through special seasons like Advent, through this never-ending rehearsal of the gospel story, our soul is learning who God is, who he's made us to be, what our place and our purpose is in his story. Our soul is being shaped by the gospel so that when tragedy strikes in your life, we, we run to God automatically. Not even thinking about it. He, he's who our soul knows and loves and trusts. Spiritual muscle memory. Not just in times of tragedy. When, when amazing things happen in life, we don't take the credit, pat ourselves on the back. We, we praise the Lord without hesitation. It's automatic. Like Levi picking up and throwing a ball. It's, it's automatic because we see him as the sovereign one over all. The only one worthy of all praise. Because we don't just know those things as concepts with our minds. Our soul has been shaped by them. Spiritual muscle memory. This is why we do Advent. Year after year, we look back on the promises of God to send his son, Jesus Christ, as our Savior. And he did that. He kept his, his promise. We look back on God's faithfulness. And that causes us to then look forward in faith at the future promises of God. He's promised that he will send Christ again to, to, to make all things new. And he's promised that he's going to provide everything we need every step of the way until that day comes. And we trust him. Until, until the second advent of Christ, we trust him because our souls are shaped by this story. He promised us in Christ, and he did. He's promised he will come again, and he will. Our souls hear that year after year after year, and they're shaped by it. So this trusting, this faith in God, this becomes how we live. We live not by sight, but by faith. And so, on this, the first Sunday of the Advent season, we want to start a journey to rehearse the story, repeat the story, the, the, the gospel story. The, and, and, and what we want to do this year specifically is we, we want to rehearse the whole story, not just the baby in the manger part with the angels singing glory glitter falling from the sky. We want, we want to rehearse the whole story. We want to start at the beginning and journey all the way to the manger because that's what Matthew does in the first chapter of his gospel. He does this, he starts at the beginning, so that when we get to Christ, we know who he is, why he's come. So he, he does this so that through Christ, our soul might truly see 
who God is, who he's made us to be, what our place and purpose is in his story. That's what we want to catch a glimpse of this morning. And our journey starts in Matthew 1 and verse 1. Read it with me. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. If you missed last week, yep, we are about to go through this genealogy. Nope, we're not kidding. If you need to know why and all the details, go back and listen to the podcast. Although it won't help you with your spiritual muscle memory, just so you know. But we're going through this genealogy because a genealogy is a summarized story. And this one, in this one, Matthew outlines the story of God's redemption all the way from Abraham to to the advent of Christ. So we want to walk through that story. We don't just want to walk through a, a mere list of names. Talk about who each individual person is, how many kids they had, dates around when they lived. That, that's not what we're doing. That's not Matthew's point. No, no we are going to trace the story and hopefully highlight the things that Matthew highlights. All you're going to get pretty much for the rest of this morning is is a story, and hopefully highlight the things Matthew highlights. There, there's a million details that we could get into, a million details that I've found myself wanting to get into. But, I mean, people, we've gone through 14 chapters of John in two years. We're about to do Genesis to Judges. There's a million details I would like to get into, but we're going to do our best to stick with Matthew's details so that We see, we know, and we feel the point he's making. We want to see what he highlights. And you may be thinking, what does Matthew highlight? I don't see anything but a list of names. What what details does he give? I mean, genealogy just kind of has this formula to it. A was the father of B, and B was the father of C, and C was the father of D, and so forth and so on in perpetuity. And that's true to a, to a certain extent, but if you noticed, even in our reading from this morning, every now and then, Matthew deviates from that formula. And, and whenever he does so, he's doing it for a reason. He's drawing our attention to something. He's, he's highlighting something, as it were. And his highlights begin in verse 1, as he connects Jesus with two primary people. Who are they? This is like a Sunday school softball lob. Abraham and David. He connects Jesus with with Abraham and David. Why those two? I mean, like out of the entire family history of Jesus, why Abraham and David? think, I think we're going to see why as this genealogy continues to unfold. Today we're going to focus on Abraham. Walk through verses 2 to 6. Next week we'll get to David. But through both of these men and their subsequent generations, Matthew's going to show us something about God. Something about who he's created us to be and what our place and purpose is in God's 
story? What will he show us through Abraham? Look at verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Four generations and our first deviation. Did you see it? Right there at the end, we not only hear that Judah was the father, excuse me, that Jacob was the father of Judah, but also Judah's brothers. Well, duh. Why tell us that? And here's where we have to journey all the way back to Genesis, where this story is starting. Let's go all the way back. Let's meet Abraham, who this list starts with. Let's meet him the first time he's brought up in Scripture. Flip back in your Bibles all the way to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. This is the first time we meet Abraham. At the time, his name is just Abram. His name's going to get changed by God a little bit later on. We don't have time to talk about that detail, Jonathan. Move on. But Genesis 12, verse 1, I'll probably just call him Abraham the whole time. So here we go. Now the Lord said to Abram, Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, this is obviously not where the Bible begins. I mean, we are 11 chapters deep at this point, right? Why does Matthew skip Genesis 1 through 11? Well, he does so because he's kind of assuming you've already read them. Matthew is writing primarily to a Jewish audience. This is the reason he can give Jesus' genealogy and just highlight things along the way by just throwing in little names here, little caveats there, and, de- and deviating from the, uh, the genealogy formula. And he's assuming his Jewish audience is familiar with Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1 through 11 are really like the Bible's prologue. Right? It's, it's the information that you need to set the stage for the story that's about to unfold. And, and what we get in Genesis 1 to 11 are basically three things. Creation, corruption, and then cycles of sin. Creation, corruption, cycles of sin. Creation, God creates all things out of the overflow of his love that he shares within his triune self. Details I want to talk about. God creates all things out of the overflow of the love that he has within himself. He creates everything centered upon his glory, his goodness, his greatness, his his beauty. Everything is centered on that. There's nothing greater to be centered upon. We, too, were created to be centered upon the glory of God. He was our joy. There's no greater joy to be given. What's the greatest thing in existence? Not a trick question. What's the greatest thing in existence, Shade? God! He gives you himself! Because he'll give you nothing less than, than the best. He was our joy. No greater joy. But our first parents thought there was a greater joy. They corrupted, moving from creation into corruption, they corrupted everything when they gave in to temptation and sin. Instead of God at the center, they put themselves at the center. Instead of trying to find their joy in God's glory, his goodness, greatness, and beauty, they tried to find it in their own. They thought that they could be like God. They put themselves in his place, corrupting all of creation. Humanity basically looked at God and said, you're a liar. You say that your glory is the greatest. We don't believe you. 
You're not great like you say you are. You're not good like you say you are. You're not beautiful like you say you are. I am. And, and we turned away from the God who gave us life and the God who sustains our life. Logically, if you turn from the giver and sustainer of life, you only have one thing to turn to. Death. Leave the one who gives and sustains life. There's nowhere else to go. And for what we had done to creation, death is what we deserve. For God loves his creation. He, he loves it. He will not let it be corrupted forever. He will remove the corruption. That's good news, right? Gospel good news that God will not let everything be corrupted forever. He will make all things new again. He'll remove the corruption. That's gospel good news until we realize that we are the corruptors. That we are what needs to be removed. This prologue puts us in a seemingly hopeless situation. That's a glorious gospel conjunction. But even as early as Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, a ray of hope shines into the darkness of this story. Because in Genesis 3.15, God makes a promise. A promise that from woman will come an offspring who will achieve victory, salvation for all of creation, from all corruption. Savior. It's a beautiful ray of hope. And we try to hang on to it as we move forward, but the story just gets darker because in Genesis chapter 4 to chapter 11, you simply enter into cycles of sin. It's just a downward, a constant. You read those chapters, it's just a constant downward spiral of corruption. And it leaves you, by the time you get done with chapter 11, it leaves you asking if the promise of God to save meant anything at all like is is there any hope that this this promised offspring will come will, will there be an advent a coming of hope this is why matthew starts us with abraham and this is what he wants us to see through the genealogy of jesus the coming of our hope. He wants us to see how God is a God of hope who gives hope. He wants us to see how we are a people of hope. He wants us to see what hope does to our place and our purpose in God's story. Look at Genesis 12 again, but let's keep reading all the way through verse 3. So this is coming on the heels of creation, corruption, and cycles of sin. See the hope that God gives through a covenant, a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1, the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God cuts through the darkness of hopelessness 
with a sword of promises. Covenant. He's a promise-making God. A covenant-making God. Covenant, the Hebrew word for covenant, literally means to cut. Because you would cut a sacrifice when you made a covenant. And God uses the covenant to cut through the darkness with hope. What hope? He, he promises to make Abraham the father of a great nation. He promises him a place. I'm going to take you to a land that I'm going to show you. I'm going to give it to you. He promises him a purpose. Through you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Or Genesis 22, 18 clarifies that a little bit with these words. In your offspring, so just like there was an offspring from the woman who's going to bring salvation to all of creation. Now we're told to Abram, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Salvation through your line, Abraham, will come to the nations. From the woman comes a savior for all creation. Through Abraham comes a savior for all the nations. God looks at Abraham and through these promises, he says, Abraham, here's who I am, a promise-making, covenant-making God of hope. You didn't do anything to deserve this? You didn't do anything to earn it? In fact, Abraham, if you go back and read his story, again, details we can't cover, he does a lot to not earn or deserve this. He does a lot to disqualify himself. But God, out of sheer grace, gives hope-filled promises because that's who he is. Let the story shape how you see who God is. And God says, and Abraham, here's who you are. The father of a great nation. I have a purpose for you, a place for you, a plan for you. I got, I got, a, I got a place for you, a land I'm going to give you. There's a place for you in my kingdom, Abraham. I've got a purpose for you in, in my story of redeeming all of creation from corruption. Through you, salvation will come to the, to the nations. God is a hope-giving, promise-making God. But is he a promise-keeping God? Is he a hope-fulfilling God? It seems so at first. That's, why Matthew, that's what Matthew highlights for us in his genealogy. Abraham does have a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob has Judah and his brothers, 11 brothers to be exact, 12 in all, will become known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Matthew highlights all these sons as if to say to us, see, he's not just a promise-making God, he's a promise-keeping God. He promised Abraham that he would be a father of a great nation, and it's happening. It's happening. Perhaps these, these 12 sons, perhaps these are the offspring of, of the woman through whom will come salvation for all creation. Perhaps these are the offspring of Abraham that will bring salvation to the nations. Perhaps they are the ones that we've been looking forward to. But Matthew won't let us think that for long. Because out of all the brothers... He highlights and singles out Judah. And he doesn't just highlight Judah, he exposes Judah's corruption. 
lest we think him a savior. Look at Matthew 1 and verse 3. And Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Twins! Yay! But we're not just told about the twins, we're told who their mama was. This is a deviation from the pattern. He's highlighting right here. Women were not typically mentioned in genealogies. And, and Matthew's already actually skipped over a lot of famous matriarchs. He even mentioned Sarah, or Rebecca, or Rachel, or Leah. He's brushed over all of them, but he goes out of his way to point out Tamar. Who is this woman? Well, she was Judah's daughter-in-law. I'm just going to let that sit till all y'all start figuring that out. Are we all on the same page? Y'all going to make me say it. Yeah, she has kids with Judah, who is her father-in-law. How's this for a Christmas story? Like all of you should go home and read Genesis 38 in full to your children, see if they have any questions. <laughs> Matthew highlights Judah's corruption. You see, Judah had a son who married Tamar, but before they had any kids, he died. So, as was the custom, Tamar married the next brother in Line. Now, I know that that sounds weird to us, but there was a purpose, and the purpose was hope. Hope for, for a, a widow. In the, in the ancient world, a woman with no husband or no son was incredibly vulnerable, on the bottom side of society's boot. So this, this system was meant to provide protection and hope for a future. But it didn't provide that for Tamar. Because the next brother that she married, Onan, was a jerk. If you want the details of that, read Genesis 38. But he soon died, and she still didn't have any kids. Well, there was a third brother that she was supposed to be given. But Judah is starting to sense a pattern at this point. Maybe Tamar marrying my sons is not very good luck. Judah really doesn't want to give her his third son. And so he lies, and he deceives, and he tricks, and he abandons Tamar to hopelessness. So, as the story goes, she disguises herself, tricks her father-in-law, and as a result, twins, Perez and Zerah. Tamar's hope doubled. Two sons but we can clearly see that even though God is keeping his promises to Abraham to make him into a great nation, corruption still abounds. These are not the promised offspring or saviors to whom we should look. And not all, I mean, Abraham's becoming a great nation, but not all of the promises are coming to fruition anyway. The descendants are multiplying, even in some not-so-kosher ways. But, but what about the place that God had promised, the land he had promised to them? What, what about their purpose that, that through their offspring all the nations would be blessed? I mean, not only do these promises seem to not be fulfilled, but the exact opposite seems to be happening. Let's read just a few more names from Matthew's list. Look at verses 3 and 4. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, Someone should name their kid that. And Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon. 
Not a whole lot going on right here, right? No real deviations from the genealogy formula. Why? Because there's no real hope to report. You noticed every deviation that, that Matthew has taken thus far has been to show us somehow that hope is hanging on. God is a promise-keeping God. That God takes someone hopeless like Tamar and brings hope to her. But right here, there is no real hope to report. These names cover a time period when all looks hopeless and like the promises of God have been lost. You ever, you ever felt that way? If you ever have a day or a month or a year that feels like that, if you do, just think about Hezron, Ram, Amenadab, Nashon, and Salmon. Those names represent about 600 years. There's some skipped generations in here, which was totally kosher amongst first century Israelites. These names represent about a 600-year period of the people of God feeling hope. You see Judah and all 11 of his brothers, the 12 tribes of Israel, they ended up going to the land of Egypt because of a famine. There's no food, nothing for them to eat, but there's food in Egypt, so they go to Egypt, and as they're there over the years, they continue to have children. They get bigger and bigger into that great nation that God promised that they would be, and eventually it starts to freak the Egyptians out a little bit. Like we could experience a hostile takeover, so what do we do? We need to subjugate these people. And they turn the Israelites into slaves for 400 years. Where, where is the place that God promised them? The land. They're in Egypt. Where is their purpose of being a blessing to all, all nations? Surely that didn't mean being enslaved by the nation. Like, where was their hope from this hope-giving God. This is where we're thankful that Tamar is not the only woman mentioned in Matthew's genealogy. Look at verse 5. And Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Two more women, Rahab and Ruth, who both help us to see hope amidst this hopelessness that we've just described. First, Rahab. God's people, slaves in Egypt, he did eventually bring them out underneath the leadership of a man named Moses. But due to their rebellious hearts, they spent about 40 years wandering around in the wilderness until finally God is going to give them their place. The land that he's promised them. There's just one problem. There's already people there. The Canaanites. So God commands his people to conquer the Canaanites. Uh, Among them is Rahab, a Canaanite prostitute. She's, She's one who doesn't belong to the people of God, and so she's hopeless. They're they're there to conquer her. She's in a hopeless situation. But what we learn from the book of Joshua is that Rahab trusts in the Lord. She she helps the Hebrews as they come in to conquer the land. And as a result, she's saved. And she eventually marries a Hebrew man. She has a son. 
which grafts her into the people of God permanently. Through Rahab, we see hope amidst hopelessness. It takes us to the second woman that we heard mentioned right there, which was Ruth. The story goes on. Even after the people of God enter into the land and they conquer the land, they've got that promise, check. But what about their purpose? To be a blessing to all nations. If you read the book of Judges, that is so far from being fulfilled. The repeated refrain in the book of Judges is this. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. They may have had the land, but everyone lived for themselves, turned in on themselves as if they were their own king, doing what was best for them. Read the book of Judges. It's the darkest period of Hebrew history. And it was a dark time in the life of a young Moabite woman named Ruth. Ruth had married a Hebrew man, but he died. No children, left her as a widow. Still, she chose to live with her mother-in-law, also a widow, two widows, living together in the midst of the lawless land of Israel. Ruth's situation seemed hopeless. The most likely scenario for them is is that they will eventually just starve to death together in abject poverty. That's what would have happened had not a man named Boaz took notice of Ruth, provided for her, married her, and she gave birth to a son which grafted her permanently into the people of God. Through Ruth, we see hope amidst hopelessness. But it gets even bigger than that with Ruth. Through Ruth's story, we don't just see hope amidst hopelessness for Ruth. Oh, no. Through her son would come hope for all of God's kingless people. For Ruth's son was Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. And in Matthew 1.6, we read Jesse was the father of David the king. A king for a kingless people. Hope for the hopeless. Are we finally there? David, the king. Could, could David be the offspring of the woman to bring salvation to all creation from all corruption? Could David be the offspring of Abraham to, to bring salvation to the nation? Matthew won't let us think that for very long. All you got to do is read the rest of verse 6, and he highlights David's own corruption. The answer, could David be that promised offspring, is simply no. Next week, we'll get into the details of of why even David won't be the king that God's people truly need. No, there's still an offspring to come. This genealogy isn't done at David. This story, it's going past David. It's going through him. It's leading us somewhere, or more specifically, it's leading us to someone. It's leading us to the true son of Abraham, the true son of David that we were told about in verse 1. It's leading us to Jesus. Everything that we have seen today, feel feel the implications. We back up from the story. Feel the implications of all the truths that we've seen about God, about us, about his place, about the purpose for his people. Everything we've seen today, everything that Matthew has highlighted has been to point us to the coming of our hope in Christ. 
The advent of our hope in Christ, in Christ alone. There's no other source of salvation. He has made that clear. All others are corrupted. Whether we want to talk about Abraham, whether we want to talk about Judah, whether we want to talk about David, none of them are saviors. Christ and Christ alone is where he is taking us for our hope. All of those people are also corrupted and in need of salvation. We all find ourselves in a hopeless situation like Tamar, like Rahab, like Ruth, all of them in need of hope. And for all of them, hope came through the birth of a son. For Tamar, for Rahab, for Ruth. It's funny, as we talk about those women scholars, I read a lot this week of various debates and opinions as to why these particular women are included. There's two more coming, Bathsheba, who gets identified as the wife of Uriah, and Mary. So we get a total of five. And scholars debate, why these five? Like, surely there's something that links all these women together, and Matthew's like making a point. There's, there's got to be some common aspect they share that Matthew is highlighting. And there's two primary theories, and I don't believe either of them. Some scholars say it's, it's sexual sin. That's what ties all these women together. Tamar, it was incest, prostitution for Rahab, but Ruth? Ruth doesn't really fit that. Even if we want to stretch it, she's a Moabitess, and the Moabites came from a result of incest, but that's stretching it pretty hard. Bathsheba? Anybody want to blame her? She was sinned against sexually. And Mary? I mean, Mary was accused of sexual sin, but she wasn't guilty. Like, I get the theory, and, and I think it, it points to something that's true. According to that interpretation, these women are included to highlight the truth that Jesus saves us from our sin. Look at all of these kinds of women that, that can be included in the family of Christ. Anyone, no matter what you've done, can be included, connected to Christ. And that is an emphasis that Matthew makes in Matthew chapter 1. Just look all the way down to verse 21. It's the angel speaking to Joseph in a dream, and it says, Mary will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Why are you going to call him Jesus? For he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus, Yeshua, just means Yahweh saves, God saves. We're told he's named that because he's going to save his people from their sins. That, that's gloriously true. But I don't think that's why the women are included. I told you there were two reasons primarily put forward by scholars. The, the other common link proposed is that all of these women are Gentiles or non-Jews. They're foreigners. Tamar was likely a Canaanite. We don't really know. Rahab definitely was a Canaanite. Ruth was a Moabitess, but Bathsheba was Jewish. Now, she married a Hittite, so once again, you don't want to stretch it. But Mary? There's nothing non-Jewish about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And again, again, I get the theory here, and I think it points to something true. According to that interpretation, these women are included to highlight the truth that Jesus saves people from all nations. Look, 
doesn't matter. They're included. So we, most of us in here, non-Jewish, can be included, connected to Christ. And, and that's definitely also an emphasis of Matthew from early on and all throughout his gospel. All you got to do is get to the next chapter. In Matthew chapter 2, we get the wonderful Christmas story about the Magi coming to visit Jesus or the wise men coming to visit Jesus. And Matthew tells that story in a way to point to the fulfillment of the prophecy that nations would come to worship Christ. The nations come to him. And by the end of the gospel, we're sent to the nations. Matthew 28, verse 19, it's how the gospel ends. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. It's true, it's gloriously true that Christ died to save you no matter where you're from. No matter what you've done, no matter where you're from. But I don't think that's why these women are included. I mean, yes, Jesus is truly the offspring of the woman to bring salvation to all of creation, to all of us, no matter what we've done. And yes, Jesus is truly the offspring of Abraham to bring salvation to the nations. That's really explicitly said in Galatians 3.16. The promises made to Abraham and to his offspring. This is Paul talking. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Doesn't get more explicit than that. Paul says the offspring of Abraham through whom salvation will come to the nations. That's Jesus. No other offspring is our hope. Jesus alone is our hope. That is why I believe Matthew included these women in this genealogy. Because they were all in, what's, what's the common link? They were all in hopeless situations. Tamar, hopeless. Rahab, hopeless. Ruth, Hopeless. Bathsheba, used and abused by a king. Hopeless. Mary, the poor peasant girl from a poor peasant town who in Luke chapter 1 sings a song about her hopeless situation and her people's hopeless situation. And all of it was changed by the birth of a son. For all of these women, their hopeless situations were filled with hope through the birth of a son. And Matthew points through all these women toward the offspring, the true offspring of the woman who would bring salvation to all of creation. He points through these women and their sons that bring hope to the one and only son of God who would bring salvation to the nations. He points through them to Christ. Through, why are these women included? Because he says to all of us, to all of you who think yourself hopeless, here comes your hope. The birth of Jesus is the coming, the advent of hope. Is he yours? Where, where do you look for hope? What, what is your spiritual muscle memory? What's, what's, the, what's the reflex when you find yourself hope? Where do you turn? Reflex, muscle memory. What do you turn to when you're hoping? Is it, is it simply to despair? Do you run to, to relationships? You find yourself hopeless. Is, is, the, is, the, is the reflex, is the muscle memory to, to turn to substances? Drink, 
Is it to withdraw? That's mine. It's my reflex. My soul needs to be shaped by a different story because it's bought into one that's a lie. When you find yourself hopeless, it's, it's the reflex to lash out, to, to ab- abuse. What, what, what story have you been told about the hope you should run to? What, what story have you believed so that it shapes the memory of your soul? Shades, hear the gospel, good news. There is one hope for you, and it is Jesus. Yes, no matter what you've done, no matter your sin. Yes, no matter where you are from, there is hope in him for you. He has brought salvation for all creation from all corruption. He he has brought salvation to all peoples, to all nations. He has come to bring us back to God as our everlasting joy. This is our rock solid hope. Just look back at the story. Look at God's faithfulness to keep his promises and let it stir up your faith that he will keep his promises to the end, that you have a rock solid hope, that you are a part of a people of hope through Christ, that you have a place in his kingdom and that you have a purpose to spread that joy to all nations. This is our story. Let's hear it again, this Advent. Let's rehearse it again and again until it shapes our souls, until our spiritual muscle memory is to hope in Christ alone.